0: So, as I just prayed, we are covering today, uh, continuing in the book of Revelation. That's where we'll be studying. Um, We're going to be covering a huge portion of Revelation, chapters 8 through 11. We're picking up speed a little bit today. Uh, Now, I'm going to encourage you to follow along in your Bibles uh, or in the Bible provided in the seat below you. Uh, I won't have uh, uh, any of the um, uh, verses from Revelation up there today. Uh, I got a kidney stone this week, then I got sick this week, I feel like I'm experiencing all the pestilence that I've been preaching about, you know, uh, the same with Stephanie, she got sick, not that you would know it by the way she beautifully sang today, but at the rate we're going, I feel like we're going to get attacked by locusts after this sermon, Uh, So you're going to have to follow along. I'm going to summarize parts. I'm going to read parts. Uh, It's going to feel like a whirlwind a little bit. It's going to be half a theology class. It's going to be half a sermon. So just hang on to your hats, okay? Uh, And this is a a good reminder of why getting our podcast is so important, uh, because you will not pick up everything I have to say today. Uh, Sometimes I'm preaching Revelation. I see some of the glazed eyes. Trust me, I have the glazed eyes sometimes when I'm studying this book. Uh, And so sometimes going back and re-listening this while you're driving around or cleaning in the house or doing whatever it is you do, you'll help pick up things that you you missed uh, the first time because Revelation is a complicated book. I can't say this too much. It is the most complicated book to preach uh, or to study uh, because there's so much that we do not understand about the book. I mean, we don't even know what we don't even know when it comes to Revelation. Now, God designed it that way. If you wanted to spell it all out today... He would. There's things that he hold back. In fact, in in Revelation 11, there's this part where John hears something called the seven thunders, and we have no idea what it is, right? The angel says, hey, don't write about this. Hold it back. We don't know why, but it's a reminder that God doesn't always make things clear, and I think he does this because his goal in his word is for us not to understand every single detail about every single thing. His goal is for us to understand who he is, to understand his character, and then to trust him in his plan. And so that's the goal of this series. And so while looking at all the details and unpacking every word and all the multiple meanings in the Greek and the Aramaic and all of this stuff, uh, it can be cool and fun. The real impact of Revelation is understanding the meaning behind all of those details. And then us learning more about this amazing God that we sang about and then trusting him in his promises. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. So last week we covered six and seven and, and that was the opening of the seven seals. And it was the beginning of God's wrath and judgment on mankind as he begins to take back creation, all of creation from Satan. And this week, as we walked in through those first six seals, chapter 8 begins the seventh and the final steal, seal rather, of God's judgment. And I'm going to read these for you, starting in chapter 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then I saw seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, which was kind of like a bowl. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar, and he threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder and rumblings and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. In Luke, we see Zacharias, who was the father of John the Baptist, and he's in the temple. And what is he doing? He's burning incense. And it's symbolizing all the prayers of the people who were praying outside of the temple. You see this throughout scripture. In fact, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Incense, it, it symbolizes our prayers going up to God. I love this visual that it gives us of our prayer. It says, the censer filled with the fire of the altar, which is linked with the prayers of us, of God's people, it becomes a symbol of God's divine wrath. The angel takes it and he throws it at earth. As if God's judgment in part is a direct response to the prayers of his people, which we also saw last week. I love, and I've never noticed this before, how much prayer comes up in Revelation. I've never noticed this all the times I've read Revelation. I've never noticed how much prayer comes up. But this is a great reminder that our prayers, not just mine, but yours, have an impact. They make a difference. And it's a great reminder because I feel like, at least for me, far too many times in my life, I don't always pray. I didn't always pray a lot, or I didn't always pray with a lot of confidence because I didn't always feel like my prayers made a difference. And I bet I'm not the only one in here. But when we read passages like this, we're reminded that when we pray, we don't pray based on what we feel, we pray based on what we know. And we know that in Scripture, that our prayers are effective. James five tells us about that. And this is a reminder to you, keep praying. To keep praying. We pray, We talked about prayer for three weeks at the beginning of the year. We're trying to focus on prayer this year. I want you to keep praying. Some of you ever since I prayed on that, that first three weeks or I preached on that, you've been praying, you've been texting me, you've been telling me about it. Some of you started and then you stopped because you stopped, you haven't gotten back to it because you felt guilty. And some of you still haven't started. Wherever you are, keep praying. Keep writing down every prayer request you get. Keep setting aside in that time to prayer, calling out to God because they make a difference. I mean, just, I love the visual of God just hurling this to earth. It, I, I just, I wonder how my prayer life would change if I would see the effectiveness of my prayers the same way God does. And that is a prayer that I was praying for myself this week. I pray it for you now that we would all understand that we'd have a new revelation in our lives through his word and his spirit, the difference that our prayers would make and we would pray like it. Amen, church? Amen, Amen, church? And I know that our women study and our men study, they're studying prayer every week. But I want to even encourage you, if you're ever struggling in your prayer life, go back, listen to those messages that we preached. Come and ask for help, that we may help you be a part of God's people praying for God, praying to God and seeing him move in response to our prayers. All right, that's point number one. I'm going to throw a bunch of points out to you today. Now I'm going to move on to verse six. It says, now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them, right? Trumpets in in the Bible, they were like announcements, especially in terms of God's judgment. And it says the first angel blew his trumpet in verse seven and there there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees, and and actually if you read the Greek, it kind of is focused on fruit trees, were burned up. And all the green grass was burned up. Not all the grass, just the green grass because we'll see the grass again later. Now listen, like with most things in Revelation, we're not sure what would cause hail and fire mixed with blood. It's pretty horrific to think about. You know, and we have to remember that we have to hold loosely the details of Revelation because John is just recording what he saw. He, from his experiences, his understanding was trying to put to words what he saw. The best way that he could. Some of it's literal, some of it's symbolic. Because you see in scripture, God, God used to, especially in the Old Testament, there's a lot of symbolism used. Mixing meaning with literal objects. So we got to hold loosely. Like it doesn't mean because there was hail and fire that there was hail and fire and it was like dripping with blood, like from some horror movie. It could mean that the hail came down and caused a death. And that's where the blood came from, which would be incredible hail. I did some research For fun, uh, I don't know why this was fun to research it, but I guess it was. I I checked, and only four people have died from the one website I I checked, which I think was the NOAA website. Only four people have died died from hail since the year 2004, right? So this is is like a crazy, crazy hailstorm. If it's even hail or if it just looks like hail. The fire, it could be fire. You know, some think it's like a tail of a meteorite or an asteroid or, or more likely a comet. Um, you know, it, it, fire could be a metaphor for God's judgment. We just don't know. And then the, the God's judgment fire, it, make, it makes sense if you look back to, to verse 5 that we just talked about. And we also have to remember like when we read things and it says like a third of something, uh, I don't think John was up there with a measuring tape counting. I think this is an estimation of what he sees of this vision that he's having. Then we move to verse eight and it says a second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood and a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. Once again, this kind of like sounds like a, like a huge asteroid or a huge comet. I had to look up the difference between an asteroid and a comet this week. Comet this, this week. It was a very educational week scientifically for me. An asteroid, in case you didn't know, it's all rock. And a comet is rock, but it's also like dust and, and ice. Those are, that's kind of like the difference. And then... A meteor is a piece of those that would break off and enter Earth's atmosphere, and a meteorite is the stuff that would be left over on the ground that made it. I don't know if you all knew that, but now you know. Okay, so like spiritually, intellectually, we love to pour into all areas here at Echo Lake, right? So, so this is the idea. Like, we don't know what it is. It could be something else, and it, and it but it kills, it destroys boats, it, it kills uh, animals. You know, um, we don't know what it is. It could be a tsunami from a comet or something, and we've seen how easy tsunamis can destroy things. You remember, you see on the video from what happened to Japan years ago, you know. But then there's some like, how could it be a comet? Because if the comet gets too big, the, the tidal wave would wipe out everything. So we don't know. Some think that it's not even a, a, a little mountain; that it's a metaphor. Because in the Old Testament, you see God use mountains as a metaphor for judgment of nations. So that it could be this great economic nation that rises up at the end. And as it crumbles, it crushes the entire maritime industry. And there's no use for a third of the ships anymore. Now that doesn't tell us why a third of the sea life dies. um, But it's another theory. We don't know. It ain't good, whatever it may be. Verse 10, the angel third blew his third trumpet and a great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of the water. And the name of the star was called Wormwood. And a third of the waters became Wormwood. And many people died from the water because it had been bitter. Once again, sounds like another asteroid or comet. And then that seems a little weird because like there's three comets coming right in a row if they're all like, once again, you just don't know what these things are. Is it an angelic being? We just don't know. Now, Wormwood is an actual plant. It's non-poisonous, but it's a bitter plant. You find it in the Middle East. Uh, Middle East. It's actually used in some really, really strong uh, alcohols that you'll find in the Middle East. And in, and in the scripture, when it's used, it's used as an analogy for, for justice and, and bitterness and sorrow. Oh, excuse me, injustice. And so we're not sure why people died from it because it's technically non-poisonous. There might be some more symbolism here than literal. We're not sure, but somehow whatever happens here with this third trumpet is it affects the water supply. The fourth angel blew his trumpet in verse 12 and it says a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that the third of their light might be darkened and the third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. All right, so these are your first four trumpets. As we move to chapter nine, we see the trumpets continue. And this is, if it hasn't already, this is where things really get weird, okay? Chapter nine, verse was. it says, and the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fall from heaven to earth, and he was given to the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke of the shaft. Now, we're not sure who the star is. It could be an angel who has a key to the abyss. It could be uh, a demon that you're gonna see mentioned here in verse 11. Uh, It could be Satan, though I don't think so. I'm not gonna go into reasons why. Now, what is the abyss? Abyss appears seven times in Revelation and always references this abode where uh, incarcerated demons are. Remember, scripture teaches us that there is a war, spiritual war, going on in this world that we cannot see. There are angels who serve God, there are demons who serve Satan, and they are working behind the scenes. And it's important for us to read these things, to understand them, because the greatest gift that we can give to Satan and the enemy is to pretend they are not there. Amen, church. Jude 1, remember we studied Jude, I think, at the beginning of the year or last year. We studied at one point. And it says in verse 1-6 that the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept an eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So long story short, the angels who got into extra trouble really crossed some lines that they have been locked up. You also see in Luke chapter 8 verse 31 when Jesus comes across some demons and they're begging him, hey, don't throw us into the abyss. So there's some place, it seems scripture tells us, where demons are, certain demons are left and locked up. It seems some that have crossed the line, an even greater line, and they're left there. And, And this is where at the end times these demons will be let out. In verse three, it says, "Then the smoke came. Then from the smoke came locusts on earth, and they were given powers like the power of scorpions on earth. And they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Probably not a literal seal, a symbolic seal. They were allowed to torment. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them." And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. So John says these demons come out of the abyss at the end times. They're no longer hiding, right? They were like locusts, right? Now they weren't locusts because locusts don't have scorpion tails, they don't have, and they don't go after people. If you've seen locusts, they do terrible damage, but it's to crops. And he gives this description of what they look like. CJ put a screen up here, picture of you. <laughs> now listen, I think John once again is just giving descriptions. The Bible they love to give physical symbols to characters, to 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 different things to illa to illustrate qualities to characters. Right? You know, it says they have faces like men. Means they're intelligent, they're rational. You know, it says they have hair like women, teeth like a lion, probably fierce and powerful. Hair like a woman, maybe to to, to emphasize they're seductive in nature. Breastplates, they're, they're protected. They have wings, which means they'll be able to cover giant areas that nowhere can hide, no one can hide from, right? So they're probably not going to look like this. That's scary enough as it is, right? One of the thoughts is we're talking about demon possession here, that they're going to come out here, they're going to possess people. You see this in Scripture, uh, Matthew 8. There were people that were tormented, tormented by demons, that they went insane living in the tombs. Matthew 4, Jesus encountered other people that were possessed. Uh, uh, Matthew 8, there was a centurion servant who was tormented with paralysis by a demon. And then in Mark 9, there was a young man who kept throwing, wanting to throw himself into fire and try to drown himself, going crazy because of demons. These are such some of the spiritual and physical torments that we see in Scripture that demons can do to people. Now, during this time, like it says, those who belong to God are protected. We know in scripture that no Christian, no person who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ can be possessed by a demon. Because we are taught that when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes inside of you. But it doesn't mean you can't be influenced. So we must always be careful what we allow ourselves to be influenced by. So, anyway, so we have all of these demons come out. They're like locusts. They're everywhere. Be horrible things. A crushing time for humanity. And then we're going to read here in verse 12. We're going to jump to 12, and we're going to see there's this sixth trumpet that's blown, and it releases these four angels, probably fallen angels. And they've been held back, they've been bound but now they're allowed to raise up an army to kill a third of mankind. And in verse 16, chapter nine, it says the number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. Anybody, anybody do quick math on that? About 200 million, 200 million. Now, this also may not mean specifically 200 million um, because the Greek word here, marios, can mean a uh, innumerable amount, not a specific number. And this is important to remember because a lot of people will look at this and they'll be like, okay, a 200 million men mar And, you know, there'll be people that'll think, hey, this is speaking of China coming in the end times, one of the two times they think China will rise up, you know, and they think that when when it talks about these these uh, 200 million, it, it talks about these horses that they have that these people ride uh, this army rides, and they think it means like tanks, you know, that it's symbolism for uh, a military conquest. But I think to think of this as like a military thing and to assign it to some country is to miss the message that John is trying to convey to us. One of the characteristics that John gives, it says these horses that these, these riders ride have tails like a serpent, But when you read in scripture, anytime a serpent's mentioned, or I say most times, I should say most, it doesn't have to do with warfare. It has to do, usually as a metaphorical teaching for false, metaphor for false teaching. And so it's likely that maybe when this army rises up, it's going to be more about deception through false teachers. That's going to cause man to turn on one another which will create this death across the world. We just don't know. But whoever they are and however it works, it will bring even more destruction, which is hard to fathom because if you've been here for every week, there's like, what is there left of the earth to destroy? Now that's also a good reminder that when we read Revelation, we often read it straight chronologically, right straight through. But there's a good case to be made that the, that this is not necessarily chronologically in terms of a timeline, but that it's chronologically in the visions that John saw. John saw this vision, this vision, this vision, and this vision. It doesn't mean that the timeline runs straight through those, or there's not overlap between them. You'll see this because there's certain statements that are made all throughout Scripture. Like even at the end of 11, where they're like, the earth is yours, lords. You've taken everything back. It all belongs to you. But then we get into 12 through 14 and talks about the beast. talks about the Antichrist. It talks about Satan. So there's still more to be done. So once again, it's a great reminder. You have to hold so loosely the details of Revelation. Now what's interesting is that after the locust, after this locust-like demons, after the, the 200 million or however many the army they came, however that does, it says this in verse 20 of verse nine. It says, the rest of mankind, the ones who were not killed by these plagues, they didn't repent of their works. Their hands did not give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries, which is really, long story short, is another way of talking about drugs. Or their sexual sexual immorality or their thefts. It is crazy to think, and we saw this in, in last week, that all of these events are happening to the point where people are like, hide us from God, and yet there's still people who will not repent of their ways. That everything could be falling upon them and they still will not repent to God, It is a stark reminder for us of the hardness of our hearts and the depths of our sin. That we must be so, so careful that we must understand the depths of our depravity How easy it is for us to ignore God in our lives. That literally everything could fall around us, fall apart, and we would still ignore God. And we've seen people in our lives, haven't we? People where everything else around them has fallen apart, they will still not acknowledge God. And that kind of leads me to the next thing I want to talk about. As we jump to chapter 10, there's this other angel that shows up. It's another vision. A grand angel that shows up in beauty and display. And, um, and it says that he's holding a scroll. And I'm, I'm going to jump to verse 8. And there was a voice that came to John. And he said, I heard from heaven, saying, go and take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me that little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. Reminds me when I ate too much ice cream as a kid or as an adult. In verse 10, it says, And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when, but when I had eaten in my stomach, it was made Bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about the peoples and the nations and the languages and the kings. And prophesy doesn't necessarily mean like tell people things that they don't know is coming, but it means to proclaim the gospel. So this angel says, gives him the scroll and he eats it. I know it goes against everything you were taught in preschool. Don't eat paper, don't eat glue. He eats it, right? Symbolism here, sweet as honey, bitter to your stomach. And I thought a couple cool things here. Often in scripture, you see God's word is compared to food. Jesus says, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's in 1 Peter 2, God's word's compared to milk, meat in 1 Corinthians 3, honey in Psalms 119. Prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They knew what it was to consume and to eat the word of God before they could share it with others. It is a reminder to us, church, that we must consume the word of God. It's not something that we glance at. It's not something we read to check off our daily red list. Oh, I did this. It means we must take it in. We must chew on it. It means we think through it. We learn to understand it. We study to know the context the context of verses, and then we apply it to our life. Far too many people that call themselves Christian, they go to church, they listen to a message, but they never consume the word of God. They never start to live by it. They never work to understand it. It's always separate from them. It's something that's next to them instead of apart and in them. I pray that it's a challenge for every single one of us that if any of us who are not, that we don't consume the Word of God, we don't study it, that we'll hear the voice of the Lord challenging us this morning to change our ways. whether it be joining one of the small groups, even if they've been going for a while, to get in there deeper, whether it to be a, a Tobias. A study Bible. It might be even for some of you to stop reading the Bible in a year and start reading just a chapter or even a paragraph a day and really digging into what it says. I'd love to help you if you need it. We must consume the Word of God, it must become a part of us. Because, like John, we have a call, we have a call to prophesy or to proclaim the gospel. You know, and it's sweet. Man, when we're singing up here and we're swinging about the promises of God, doesn't it it taste sweet to say those words? Doesn't it fill your soul with hope and with joy and with love? But there's also a bitter part of God's word. And, and, And it could be twofold. Like, on one hand, it's bitter because... When God does come back, and we'll talk more about this later in another week, but when God comes back, there'll be those who don't have spent eternity with him. There'll be those who reject him. And that's bitter. That's bitter to me. When you think about the people that you love, who reject the Lord, that gives me an empty feeling in my heart. It's bitter. You know, I... When you grow up in a Pentecostal church, you're always singing, Come, Lord Jesus, come. You know, and I and I do wish the Lord for to come, but there'd be a point where we get too excited about Jesus coming, that we forget what he reads. And we read in 2 Peter 3 that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord's not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness instead he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish. I always feel like as Christians, we should never be too excited for the Lord to return too quickly. We should be willing to endure any suffering, any struggle in this world for as long as it takes, that so many more would call upon the name of the Lord. Are you with me, church? And, and I think that's part of the bitterness, too. Like, you know, when you look at all the prophets of the Old Testament, like Ezekiel and and he had a similar interaction with an angel where where God's word was was sweet to but then became bitter is that you're treated poorly if you really proclaim the gospel you're going to get canceled you're going to get ostracized you know And hopefully it's not because you're a jerk about it, you know, which we've talked about. Even when you go and you preach it in a loving way, people are gonna want to be done with you and you're gonna be punished for it. You're gonna lose out on raises and and popularity and and celebrity in your life and opportunity and, and influence. And that can be bitter and it can be lonely. And so that partly might be what John was experiencing as he's sitting there on an island banished for preaching God's word. But it reminds us that we have a call nonetheless to take this message to those who need it. That we would snatch people from the fire as we read in Jude. Now finally... We move on to Jude 11. I mean, I think Jude 11, there's only one chapter in Jude. Uh, we move on to, uh, to Revelation 11. And in Revelation 11, I'm going to summarize this. God asked John, he says, I want you to measure my temple. And it's symbolic. It's not like John was on the ground with a ruler once again, right? He says, I want you to measure my temple, which is a way of saying, I want you to see all the people who have come through this and followed me. All the people through all of these judgments, all the suffering of earth and their life, and they now follow me. He said, I want you to see them. See the beauty of their faith. And then he says, but for everybody else, I'm going to send two witnesses. There are two witnesses that are going to come and prophesy in the end times. And and we don't know who these two witnesses are. Uh, Some think it's going to be the prophet Elijah and Moses because they're gonna, these two witnesses will perform miracles similar to what Elijah and Moses did. And, and actually Jewish uh, tradition expected them to be the ones to return. You also see Elijah and Moses show up in the Mount of Transfiguration, which I don't have time to explain, but you can, you can read about that in, in Luke nine thirty later. Some think it'll be Elijah and Enoch, because these are two men who never died in the Bible, or at least it doesn't say that they died right? Enoch says it walked with God in, in Genesis 5, and then he was no more, right? And Elijah, he got to ride like a chariot of fire into heaven. So they figure, okay, you know, nine, Hebrews 9.27 says everyone, it's appointed to every man to die once, and then comes judgment. Well, everybody has to die. So it must be these two guys who are going to come in the end times. Then again, that doesn't hold up because if you think about it, when the Lord returns, there's going to be a bunch of people who never died. So that can't be it. So we don't really know who they are. They could be two of these guys. They could be two people that we don't even know. <clears throat> Some think, and I won't go for the reasons why, that these <coughs> these two guys uh, are not two guys, but they are a reference to the church. Because, uh, because the number two is used a lot in the Bible to, uh, to uh, symbolize complete witness to something. Now, I think there's so many specifics. These really are two men, but we don't know who they are. Now, when they come... People will hate them. They're gonna have the ability to do miracles. People will not be able to kill them. They're gonna preach Jesus. But then it says that when their work is done, when they finish their testimony, the beast, which we often refer to as the Antichrist, we'll talk about him next week, he'll kill them. Only when their work is done. People are going to be so happy that these guys die, they're going to give each other gifts. It's like, it's like a twisted Christmas. Because they couldn't stop these guys from preaching Jesus. But this is going to say after three and a half days, verse 11 of chapter 11, it's going to say the breath of life from God entered them. They stood up on their feet and then everybody got afraid around them. Yeah. <laughs> and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to the Lord. And there'd be a great earthquake and 7,000 people died in that earthquake. And the rest would give glory to God. That's right. I really hope somebody planned that because let's do that at the 1045. (laughs) couple final thoughts here. These two witnesses, you know what I thought was kind of cool? Nobody could touch them until their work was done. All throughout the revelation, you see one thing. God will permit evil. He'll allow it to serve his purposes. He will not allow it to get in the way of his purposes. And this is a good reminder for every one of us because a lot of us will doubt our ability to serve God and share his name. But when God assigns something for you to do, nothing is going to stop that from happening until your job is done. All the doubts that you put in your mind of what God's calling you to do, even if it's simple as asking, inviting somebody to church uh, or to something even much, much bigger, God reminds us time and time again, nothing will prevent you from doing the Lord's work. When he assigns something to you, you're going to do it one way or the other. You can't even stop you. Hashtag Jonah. You're going to do it. You're a witness to God, just like these two are now. 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen witness, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his only, own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you sit here today and your faith is in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is the call on your life. I don't care what ifs you have. I don't care what buts you have, what doubts you have, none of them trump the call that God has put on your life and nothing will stand in the way of you doing his work if you will just answer the call. If somebody were to ask you how to be a Christian, would you know what to say to them? If somebody accused you of being a Christian, is there enough evidence in your life visible to this world that they could convict you of it? If you have children or you're married, the people closest to you, how would they describe your relationship with Jesus? If someone asked you, how did Jesus change your life? Or why do you believe what you believe? Could you tell them? Are you actively praying for God to use you as a witness in the lives of others? God provides lots of warning before he brings judgment. You ever notice that? People always complain. God's a God's of judgment. But all throughout scripture, he warns people time and time and time and time again. Judgment will come if you don't turn your ways. Judgment will come. They don't turn their ways and then they complain about God's judgment. As opposed to Nineveh who changed their ways, at least for a time, and God withheld his Judgment. And this impacts us in two ways. Number one, we're called to be that warning to people. We're called to warn people about God's judgment in their lives and the consequences of their sin. Because sometimes God's judgment is just allowing your consequences of your sin to catch up with you. We have to take it more seriously than we do. Every one of us, even I can get complacent in my life. We must remember the impact of God's judgment and revelation and it must take the apathy and suck it out of us and realizing we have a call on this earth to do his will in spreading his gospel. And we never know how long we are given. And along with that, some of you may be sitting here today, God has been warning you about your life. Either you have sin in your life that you are not giving up by doing things you know you should not be doing or you have sin in your life you're not giving up because you're not doing the things you know you should be doing. You are no exception. I am no exception. God is not a fool. Our judgment will come for us. God keeps his promises, both of judgment and of blessing. And it's my prayer today that you will not be like the people that we read about who saw all the things that were happening in this world and yet did not repent. In fact, Jesus talks about this in Luke, where some people see something bad happen to somebody else. And they're like, is is that because of his sin? And he says, listen, no that you see there is to be a reminder to all of you of your sin and how we are fallen before God. I pray that the judgments we've talked about today, they would wake us up where we need to be woken up. That we may be recipients of his blessing and not of his judgment. And that as we receive that blessing, and we see that we're the judgment we're saved of we would be like the witnesses that we would go out boldly and preach the good news like honey off our lips to a world that desperately needs it